0: Well, good morning, brothers and sisters. We live in strange times. We live in perilous times, just like Paul described in 1 Timothy 4. From the beginning, the nature of male and female and the nature and the structure of marriage and its connection to children has been generally understood, even though at times sinfully misused but we have now reached a new low in our culture's embrace of a dehumanizing worldview. Marriage was gutted of its meaning and purpose first, and now the children arising out of marriage are despised and unwanted, and all that is certainly dehumanizing enough. But now what it means to be human is being aggressively redefined at its most basic level, the level of male and female. So my hope for today is, in some small way, to paint a picture from the Holy Scriptures of goodness and beauty and wisdom and the love of God embedded in His creation of male and female marriage and children. Not to make them into an idol, but to live in the way that God intended so that we flourish and we find peace and joy within His will. And the best place to understand and see what God's will is for human life is at the creation. And in Matthew 19, verses 3 through 6, that passage tells us of a day when Jesus Christ used the creation story to rebuke the Pharisees with the truth of male and female marriage and children. And so today, we will work through verses three and four of Matthew 19, and dig into the creation of male and female, and God willing, next week, we'll examine verses five and six, and dig into the creation of marriage. Please join me in a word of prayer. Our Father, we rejoice in your grace extended to us in the gospel of your Son. Thank you for digging us out of the pit that we were in and for cleansing us and forgiving us and setting us way high in right beside your son in him, and that you are continuing to uphold us and sanctify us and cleanse us. And so, we ask today for the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the full knowledge of Jesus Christ so that we might live our lives according to your will and escape the defilement in the world. We confess our continuing need of your life-giving word and ask that you uphold us and light our way. And so we desire to worship and submit to you. And we thank you in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. So you might want to open your Bibles and turn to Matthew 19 and let's read together Matthew 19, verses three through six. The Pharisees also came to him, testing him, and saying to him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? And he answered and said to them, have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female, and said, for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore what God has joined together, let not man separate. Now maybe you notice that this passage is about divorce. And my message is not about divorce. But in answering a question about divorce, Jesus responds here with the truth. He uncovers uh, the truth. He, he gets down to what is real about human life in male and female and marriage and children. And just like in our day, there was a running debate among the, uh, the, the rabbis about what legitimate grounds for divorce might be. And... Here in verse 3, the Pharisees use this debate to try to trap Jesus. And their trap is not our concern this morning, but the way he answered them instructs us for the challenges of our own day. Instead of referring to a scripture passage about divorce, he answers by quoting two scripture passages that don't even mention divorce, don't even have the word marriage in them. So look at verse 4 of Matthew 19 and notice how he begins his answer in the first phrase of verse 4, have you not read, have you not read, haven't you Pharisees of all people even read Genesis 1:27 and Genesis 224? You have obviously missed what they plainly teach. Now, it's very certain that the Pharisees had read those passages, probably many times, but they have failed to understand their plain meaning of male and female in the creation story and then draw the necessary conclusions that flow from that understanding. The Pharisees couldn't answer questions about divorce correctly because they didn't understand Marriage and its foundation, male and female, to begin with. Justice in addressing divorce and other issues of morality demands that the intention or the spirit of the law be understood first so that then the letter of the law can be rightly applied. So Jesus is giving these Pharisees a scripture interpretation lesson here a lesson that really goes deep. And God has blessed us greatly by preserving these gospel accounts because in them we find truth and knowledge and wisdom for the challenges of our day. So Genesis 1.27 and Genesis 2.24 together communicate God's intention for human life in male and female, marriage and children, and My purpose this morning is to examine these passages and then try to draw out the necessary conclusions that flow from them. Because what we face today is deeper and deadlier than divorce. Why? Because the same strong riptide in the culture that brought us easy divorce is now dragging the younger generation away from marriage and away from having children, and convincing them that male and female are somehow interchangeable. So, these two passages are for us today, and they are just packed with truth and meaning for us. They actually establish the form and the purpose and the morality of marriage, as well as speaking to love, to human sexuality, to childbearing family, Genesis 1.27 and Genesis 2.24 communicate a divine ordinance, God's authoritative rule of life based on the nature of male and female laid down at creation. Human life is grounded on those two passages. Now, let's look at the second phrase of Jesus' answer in Matthew 19, verse 4. Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning? He who made them at the beginning. So notice that Jesus leads into his scriptural quotations by first affirming the existence of a maker and a beginning. In the beginning, God made male and female bodies that work together in complete harmony to bring new human life, new eternal souls into being. The categories of male and female simply could not have come about by random chance operating through genetic mutations and natural selection. Impossible. Male and female did not evolve. They were created. And then God immediately brought the two, brought the male and the female, into the social and legal relationship that uh, he crafted for them that we call marriage. So clearly then, marriage is not the invention of culture, it's not the result of human ingenuity, and it is not patriarchal oppression by white Protestant Anglo-Saxon males. No, the creator God fashioned marriage, therefore it belongs to him, he owns it. He holds the copyright, he holds the patent, He defines what it consists of and how it ought to be used. And then, after situating his teaching about marriage squarely on the creation story in Genesis, in the third phrase of his answer in Matthew 19, verse 4, Jesus quotes just four Hebrew words, five words in the English. Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female, made them male and female. In the creation, God made mankind as two distinct but complementary sexes, not genders, sexes. This is important to understand. In the past, those two words were synonyms. They meant the same thing. And you can see this in old dictionaries. And gender also referred to the gendered grammar of languages. You see in foreign languages, English isn't quite as prominent in that sense. But, but today, those two words describe two related but different things. The word sex refers to biology, to the two biological categories into which almost all living things are divided on the basis of reproductive function, male and female. And today, the word gender is defined as the social roles or the expressions of masculinity and femininity that are rooted in biological sex. But because the gendered grammar of language seems to be arbitrary, Those who are driving these cultural changes now tell us that these expressions of masculinity and femininity are also arbitrary, just inventions of culture, and therefore are not rooted in biology. That's what we're being told today. And then, because they teach that the mind is disconnected from the body, It's very easy then to take further steps away from reality and say that gender is determined by a person's inner feelings and not by biological sex, and that gender is fluid and changeable. And that idea goes hand in hand with a very determined effort to escape the restraints of biology, biological sex, and God's purposes for it. Thus, we have been just led down into this mind-boggling pit of degradation through philosophies built on lies and intentional changes of word definitions. And the current culture, the current younger generation is reaping the whirlwind. But the truth is that God created two sexes and he created the, bio, the, the, the social roles that are rooted in them, the expressions of masculinity and femininity that flow from them. They are intertwined and they cannot be separated. Made them male and female. So very simply and hopefully sensitively, from his body the male begets the young and within her body the female conceives the young, gestates the young, births the young, and then nurses and nurtures the young after birth. this This simple factual scientific definition has been understood from the beginning. It's not rocket science. It's also been generally understood that the specific differences between the male and the female clearly show that The design of the male body and psychology fit him to be father, protector, and provider. And that of the female fit her to be mother, nurturer, and helper. In fact, these differences between male and female are the single most important fact of human life. What do I mean by that? Well, simply this. Being made as male and female drives human life. Every single person that's ever been born has come from the union of just one male and one female. Every single person. And every male is designed in body and mind to connect to a female. And every female is designed in body and mind to connect to a male. Human life revolves around male and female. So right here, a pattern emerges, a picture of human life as God created it. Do you see it? And I ask that because Jesus expected the Pharisees to see it and then draw the necessary conclusions. So how are male and female defined? By reproductive function. How is reproductive function defined? By details such as begetting, conceiving, gestating, birthing, and nursing. And so here's the picture at the beginning, first a male, and then a female, and then as their reproductive functions draw the two together, children, to whom the male is father and the female mother. And each of those words that I use describe a particular aspect of an unchanging human reality that you just cannot redefine. And out of that pattern, another picture should arise in our minds. Do you see it? Because Jesus expected the Pharisees to see it. The picture is of just one male and just one female living together and united for life in the social legal relationship of marriage, together caring for and deeply loving the babies they bring into the world. And as we look at that and gaze at that picture, at the father and the mother loving their babies, we become aware of grandparents then who were themselves loved by their parents and now pass down that love through the generations. So there are ties of love and sacrifice all the way down the generations of the extended family that then envelops those new little babies. That's how God intended this to work. These pictures must have children in them. Without children, the story dies out. Humanity comes to an end. I know that some couples are unable to have children, but we're looking here at God's pattern for male and female. And looking at these pictures with children in them should lead us to ask this important question. Who will care for the babies that the male and the female bring into the world? Who? Let me put it stronger. Who is obligated to care for the babies that the male and the female bring into the world? Who are utterly helpless and vulnerable, needing protection and education and nurture for years, until they are ready to stand on their own. Answer, the male and the female who made them are obligated to care for them. This is even still embedded in our law today. It should not surprise us then that God crafted a social and legal relationship between the two that binds them together for life as well as placing in that particular male and in that particular female a fierce love for their particular babies that impels them to gladly sacrifice and protect and care for those particular babies, willingly laying their own lives down for them. In fact, no one in all the world loves those babies like their own mother and father, no one. This is how God made the male and female to function. The male loving those babies in the way that males do, and the female loving those babies differently in the way that only females can love and care for those babies. And to watch a new father and mother love their own little babies is a soul-satisfying and glorious picture, and it's an expression of the love of God, It's just a glimpse of the love of God On display and if they don't love their own babies in this way something is terribly wrong terribly wrong and we must conclude then that something has gone haywire when men can encourage and women will willingly kill their own babies in the womb you see to be made as male and female is all about bringing new human life into the world and then caring for that life. In fact, bringing new human life into the world and then nurturing it is one of the most important things that a male and a female can do together. New human life is necessary for humanity to flourish. And without the inflow of new human life, human cultures and economies will decline and fall into ruin. So, those of us who are, are male... We should live as a male, expressing masculinity through our male and female nature. Those of you who are female should live as a female and express femininity through your female body and nature. So let us use our bodies according to our creator's design and purpose for them. Now, all that I just described and more is embedded in those five words, made them male and female. We, we, we have to examine the scriptures. We have to look carefully at how our bodies were made. We have to look at nature. And in the fear of God and in the light of his word, then understand and embrace that good and acceptable and perfect will of God for our bodies. What I described is also the natural use of human sexuality as God created it to be used. And a right understanding of the natural use then helps us think carefully and deeply about the unnatural uses that we see all around us. So please read and carefully explain Romans 1, 18 to 28 to your children. Specifically laying your finger on the cause of the unnatural uses in verses 18, 21, and 25. They suppressed the truth in unrighteousness, verse 18. They knew God, but they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, verse 21. They exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, verse 25. That's describing the cause of the unnatural uses. But there's more about male and female. There's something special about the way that God created the human male and female. In the creation account in Genesis 1, we learn that God just spoke a word and the earth just sprouted with vegetation and trees. He, he spoke another word, and the the air and the water just swarmed with living creatures of all kinds and shapes and sizes. And then he spoke another word, and the earth brought forth animals of all kinds and shapes and sizes. And here's all this amazing variety of living things, swarms of male and female of each kind of living thing. But that's not how God made mankind. He made only one male, and then one female, and all of humanity has come from that one pair. And this means that we all have a basic kinship with every other person on the earth, and that kinship does not exist among the animals. And also from Genesis 1, we read that when God created mankind, he didn't just speak a word and a a male body just a living male body just sprouted up out of the earth. Instead, we read that God pauses, and then he makes a declaration that mankind would be made in his image. And then in Genesis 2, we read details of God fashioning the body of a man and then breathing the breath of life into him. And then, also from Genesis 2, God did not make the woman like he made the man. He didn't make another body, this time female, and breathe the breath of life into her. No, he took flesh and bone right out of the body of the man and built, that's what the Hebrew word is, built the woman from those materials. And when God brought the woman to the man, the man said, this one, this female human being is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Now, no doubt there's wonder and joy here being expressed, but more profoundly, the man is verbalizing a realization that this is not just another human being, this time female. No, she is bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh. Therefore, he is intimately connected to her. And in fact, he now has a moral obligation to her. He has a moral obligation to treat her with the same care and the same nourishing and cherishing with which she already nourishes and cherishes his own body. Ephesians 5, 28 to 30. She literally is his body. She was made from his bone and flesh. Therefore, the man is to value her so highly that he will expend his life Laboring to provide for her and the children that she bears him, and lay his life down, dying for her if necessary to preserve her life, like Christ did for his bride, Ephesians 5:25. And because she was also made, she was made from the very flesh and bone of the man. The woman also has a moral obligation now to the man, to willingly and lovingly placed herself under her husband's protection and leadership in an orderly fashion, Ephesians 5, 22 to 24. Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? But there's another aspect of being made male and female, of being of humanity that goes hand in hand here, together, that underlies Jesus' answer to the Pharisees about divorce. When he quoted just four Hebrew words from Genesis one he's not ignoring the other nine Hebrew words in that verse. He didn't pick that phrase out of that verse and use it out of context, as if the rest of the verse doesn't apply to marriage and questions about divorce. The entire verse reads like this. So, God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created him. Male and female, He created them. So we learn from these words that the man and then the woman made from the man were designed and fashioned in the image of God as the basis for living then as male and female. This means that our sex is tightly intertwined with being made in God's image, and we can't separate the two. The male expresses the image of God in a male way through His male body and nature, and the female expresses the image of God differently in a female way through her female body and nature. The calling and the use of male and female bodies are different. But the image of God is in them is the same, and it brings the same value to each one as they fulfill their different functions. But notice that Jesus didn't explicitly bring that concept of the image of God into his answer to the Pharisees about divorce. Remember their question? Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? Now, from what we have already seen, just being made as male and female should lead us to respond with an emphatic, no, it's not okay. Just look at how we were made. But the question the Pharisees asking was about the morality of divorce, at least in what they were trying to do. Is it okay? Is it right? Is it permissible? Should a man be able to Divorce his wife for any old reason, Jesus. So let's think carefully. Animals don't ask questions about divorce. They don't exchange covenant vows of marriage. But human beings were made differently. We were made in the image of God. To be made in the image of God partly means that each of us possesses a creaturely copy of A mortal and limited copy of some of God's eternal and unlimited attributes, such as the fact that each of us is a unique self aware person. And each of us has a measure of freedom and ability to exercise our will, knowing that our hearts move our wills in certain directions. And we have the capacity to create and plan and build, the capacity to love and hate, the capacity to govern living things. And like the Trinity, we were made with a social relational nature through which we are to live together in loving relationship with others. And like the Trinity, each of us lives in multiple layers of of relationships of hierarchy. Where some submit to the governing of others. Yes, human life is inescapably built on hierarchy. But to get right to the point here, these attributes, these godlike attributes, and our godlike social relational nature are just the structure through which we were made to express the holiness of God and experience the blessedness of his divine life in our own human life. In other words, we are moral beings. Our lives revolve around principles of right and wrong, good and evil. And we're obligated to God to think, speak, and act in a moral way. And we're accountable to him for failing to live in that way. And because as male and female we are specifically designed to interact together around and through our sexual differences, this image of God, this morality in us gets right down into the way that we express our sexuality then. We are not animals. We are not to act like root beasts, Jude verse 10, and that's the point. But the Pharisees question about divorce. They were acting like brute beasts. They were divorcing and kicking their wives out of the house for just any old reason. They were looking for justification for that. Just like is happening in our day. Except in our day, and check this out, it's the men being kicked out of the house by the women for just any reason. When God made Adam and then Eve, He immediately married the two of them. He didn't set them loose to play around for a while and experiment with sexuality before they made a marriage commitment. He didn't permit them to live together as an unmarried couple, which would have worked against their marriage. No, they were to learn good and healthy sexual expression from God the one who created it within the boundaries of the marriage covenant that he crafted for them to live within. And we must seek out the word and godly men and women to help us learn the same thing. And this leads us to the truth that human happiness and fulfillment can only be realized through living within the holiness of God and his righteousness And then, when we put all of this together with the sobering reality that sexual expression is the very means that God has ordained to bring new eternal souls into the world, we should slow way down and carefully consider how we think about these things. But as we know, sin entered the world through that first couple, And now in fallen sinfulness, our impulse and desire is to act like animals without moral restraint. And we use our God-like attributes and powers to express evil. And evil violates God's holiness. It violates the image of God in us. And it brings cursing instead of blessing. And that's why evil in mankind is very evil. We were not made to express evil. We were made to express God's holiness and to express uh, his uh, divine life and divine the blessedness of that out into human life and experience that blessedness, that abundant life, that happiness and health and prosperity and peace and very deep joy. And what a blessed life it would be if we didn't sin. created in the image of God as male and female. But now, what are the male and the female to do? Well, the Creator gave them significant work to do together, work that still needs to be pursued today, male and female together, here's the work. Genesis 1, 27 to 28. the tasks of subduing and having dominion began in the garden where the man was placed first to tend and to keep it. And those two words, those two activities, tend and keep, mean to to cultivate and guard. And that defines this task of subduing the earth and having dominion over living things. And then man was joined by the woman shortly afterwards, and with her then the task of multiplying and filling could be accomplished. So together, the man and the woman, the male and the female, can do this. God gifted them with the capacity to do this. But neither of them can complete and accomplish these tasks on their own. They need each other. God said, it was not good for the man to be alone. And so he made the woman specifically to be his helper in these tasks, his helper, not his plaything, not his foot servant, but his helper to stand alongside him in this mission. Yes, men need women. And at the same time, God made the woman not to be his competitor, not to be his adversary, but to be his helper. So yes, men, women need men, they do. The heavy lifting of subduing the earth and, and having dominion over it falls, falls primarily on the male, while the heavy lifting of being fruitful and multiplying falls primarily on the female. Remember, the female conceives the young, gestates the young, births the young, and the nurses and nurtures the young after birth. That's significant heavy lifting. But with the two working together, the whole job gets done working within God's morality, the job gets done well and it gets done right. If they live apart from each other in mistrust and selfish independence, like is happening today in general, the job does not get done at all. And if uh, if they live outside of God's morality, the job is not done well and great harm is done then all around the table. So, male and female, each with different strengths, and abilities and functions were made to stand together and pursue life together. Made to come together, not as radical individuals, not holding each other at arm's length and mistrust, but coming together as interdependent persons made to flourish together in healthy human society. Not as sexless, genderless persons either, but living out God's purposes uniquely as male and uniquely as female. The male and the female were commanded to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And this simply means to pursue and actively engage in having babies. This is God's command to both male and female. And from this command we can see that bearing children and raising them to maturity is one of the primary functions of human life. This means that marriage has a very important focus on children and their protection and education and well-being because the family is built on the platform of marriage as God's incubator for human life. In fact, Marrying and having children is one of the most important and valuable things that a man and a woman can do together. Again, as G.K. Chesterton wrote, the business done in the daily life of the home is nothing less than the shaping of the bodies and the souls of humanity. The family is the factory that manufactures, God, uh, fa- manufactures mankind. Now, in our day, God's command is very hard for us to hear. All around us are voices that refuse that, that reject that, but God commanded fruitfulness. He wants lots of babies to be born. He doesn't establish a minimum number of babies. He just instructs us to multiply. And of course, one huge benefit that children bring into the world is that they develop solutions to today's and tomorrow's problems and needs. This is how progress happens. Thomas Edison was child number seven in that family. Childless cultures end in economic collapse and ruin. Now to close. I said that our God-like attributes and our God-like social relational nature are just the structure through which we were meant to express the holiness of God and the blessedness of his divine life out into human life. But I think that we have a misunderstanding about holiness and what it looks like in real life. Listen to this quote. <clears throat> My friends, get this. Holiness cannot be a contradiction of our humanity. Holiness is a renewal of our humanity. It is a discovery of our humanity. Holiness is what it means to be made in the image of God. And so to become God-like is to become more human than we have ever been before not less human. To be holy means to find ourselves for the first time. It means that all our potential can come to flower. To become godlike is to become more human than we have ever been before. Now isn't there a truism that says that to err is human? And that certainly is true of fallen sinful human beings. But that is not how God made humans to be. So what would it look like for full-blown holiness to characterize human life in our world? Would it look like this present and dying culture with no marriage and no children? Not at all. Would all the fun and enjoyment in life disappear? No, not at all. I think it would look something like this. God-fearing men and women, rejoicing together, loving each other in marriage, with happy, well-cared-for children, being raised in the nurture and admonition of the Lord Jesus Christ, and filling the earth, spreading the knowledge of God and His saving gospel into every corner of the earth. And it would look like God-fearing men and women Subduing the earth and using its resources in a responsible way that's not destructive to the earth or harmful to living things. Finding new and healthy ways to feed and clothe the growing population. Sustaining human life and making it more and more enjoyable. And it would look like God-fearing men and women having dominion and rule over all living things in a responsible way that works to eliminate unjust harm, protecting the innocent and punishing the guilty, ruling in righteousness and justice and love, bringing peace and tranquility over the entire world. Wouldn't it look something like that? As human beings, we were made in the image of God. And we want to see that the work of our hands is good just like the work of God's hands. But that can only happen when we are living out the holiness of God and His righteousness. We long for satisfaction and fulfillment, and there is satisfaction and fulfillment, but only as a blessed byproduct of holiness. Holiness leads us to glorify God in all things and enables us to, us to enjoy him forever. We deeply desire to live happily ever after in marriage. But this happiness again is only a blessed byproduct of holiness in the man and the woman that is lived out within a healthy loving relationship as husband and wife together glorify God in their bodies and enjoy him forever, fulfilling the task that he gave him and rejoicing together in the hope of the gospel. 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 23 and 24. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and your whole soul and your whole body be preserved blameless At the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, he who calls you is faithful, who will also do it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you even the light of nature shows us how true your word is. And I pray, Father, that your holiness would be more and more worked into us, that you would shape us into the image of your blessed Son and renew our minds so that we understand and know what your will is. I thank you that there is happiness found in you. And so I ask that you bring us closer to you, uh, farther out into the light, even that light that exposes our sin, so that you might cleanse us and continue to show us your good grace. And so we trust in you. Our faith is in you. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.